Amen. Hey, everybody. So um, I'm going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you if you don't have one, and the page number in that pew Bible is 1775. This is kind of funny. When Lloyd, did you, were you listening when Lloyd read the scripture? He, he was like, well, the pastor's been preaching on unity for about six weeks, and now he's going to preach on judgment. I just thought that was hilarious. If you, if you wanted a nice sermon, you should have come last week. So that's all, that's all there is to it. That was funny. That's totally true, but that's kind of funny. Um, yeah, so uh, 1 Corinthians 4. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 7, 1775 in the Pew Bible. Here's what it says. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? As Christians, we are going to have to have good judgment about judgment. It's really important. We are going to have to have good judgment about judgment. We live presently in a culture that is simultaneously becoming more judgmental and condemnatory, and yet more intensely morally outlawing judgment of any kind. And though that seems to be obvious hypocrisy, most of us run around dutifully oblivious to that. And if that's true of our culture, it is probably naive that that does not have an enormously deep effect on us. That we are becoming individuals that are simultaneously becoming more judgmental and condemnatory and yet more intensely morally outlawing of judgment of any kind. The second part of the judgment crisis is this. We are all making judgments constantly. You probably made 56 or 37 or 92 different judgments about things in your head since you walked through that door, however long it was. Just constantly. It's, it is an innate human reality that is unavoidable and unconquerable. Fact. It's just a fact. Thank you for participating. And, and you just need to, you, we just need to realize that. And to go into some kind of culture-wide denial is not going to help anybody and it's not going to accomplish anything positive. This morning I came across um, I came across this blog 
um, called Cul-de-Sac, which I thought was funny because I actually live in a cul-de-sac. And it's written by some woman who lives in one of those kinds of communities. And I, I want to say something about three different blogs. Now, now here, here, here's what you know. I did not search all of her blog posts to find three that fit my purposes. I picked three in a row, okay? So these three are together, okay? Now, here, and, and th- this kind of lays the groundwork for this kind of issue we're having as a culture, as people. Here, the first blog is called, My Son's in Rehab, What's New With You? And it's about her friend who, apparently her husband is just good at math, normal guy, good at math, so he makes seven figures. And they have two sons, the other one is, the second one's kind of a screw-up. So he, they sent him to a $75,000 a year school that, like, deals with screw-ups at which she got kicked out for smoking too much weed. And so he, he comes home and they said, listen, we'll try to take him back next year at 75K, but you, he's got to go to rehab. So they put him in rehab. And so she goes to this pool and all her friends are sitting around in bikinis drinking martinis. And they go, you know, Sally, what's new? And she goes, well, my son's in rehab. What's new with you? And what she says in her blog is this woman was promptly not invited to anything. And so the woman writing the blog was like, I'm having a cocktail party this weekend, and I invited her, and we'll see what happens. The next blog, the very next blog, was, something's up with her husband, how do I tell her? Very next blog. Her husband goes to this business convention with other dudes. Apparently they go play golf and drink alcohol and enjoy their time away for three or four nights. And just hang out with the guys. It's guy time. Except one of their friends this time had his cell phone on the golf course, which is forbidden, and then at midnight gets a call from a very important client and goes out to meet that very important client and comes back at dawn. And they know because they're all rooming together, right? And they're like, dude, where have you been? He's like, well, went out and met the client at midnight on Saturday night, and I got hungry afterwards, and I went, to, I went stopped at Wendy's. And m- meanwhile, they're, they're staying at a five-star hotel where they expense all of their expenses, Right? So he could have picked up the phone and called room service and gotten a five-star meal for nothing out of his own pocket, but he stopped at Wendy's because, you know, they're open late. <laughs> at least he admitted to working up an appetite, right? So, um, sorry, that was kind of crass. Uh, but, so, so the whole blog is about this woman, his wife, is my friend. What do I do? I feel like somebody should tell her, but nobody's gonna. And in the comments, I'm going to read this. This is a little crass, but I want you to read what this woman wrote. At 3.31 a.m., a woman named Nicole wrote in the comments of this blog, I was a pampered wife. My husband screwed the business card girl. I would want to know. This is the next blog. Right? The first one, wrong condemnation. The second one, a confrontation needs to happen. Who's going to do it? Well, it's not even her. It's not her job. It's her husband's job. It's her husband's job to go to Frank and say, Frank, we don't believe you. And I'm not going to cocktail parties the rest of my dang life looking your wife in the eye knowing you went and did God knows what. Either you tell her or I'm gonna. That's his job. But... Right? Then here's the very next blog. Crocs are not shoes! <laughs> so it was, it's called Suburban News Flashes. 
Crocs are not shoes. She's like, listen, I know kids like them, medical professionals apparently, they, all those people get passes, but I met a lady who said she wore her dress Crocs somewhere, and Crocs are not shoes. Which I thought, that's a little judgmental. Right? But that gets at the heart, all those three blogs, it was just like she made that for me. Just those get at the heart of the judgment crisis. One, we need to know when the right judgment is the judgment to comfort, include, and protect. When is that the right judgment? Two, when do, we need to know when and how to confront the right things for the right reasons. And three, we need to acknowledge that we are, by nature, judging creatures. And that our evaluation abilities need to be disciplined and trained, not denied. Now, if scripturally speaking, we understand that being born again or getting saved or believing in Jesus or making Jesus your personal friend, whichever metaphor you want to use for Jesus becoming King and Lord through faith in the cross for you, that is supposed to change everything. Everything. Now, how does it change the way we think about judging? Now, and in other sermons, I've said this is what's called, and I'm sorry, this is a multi-syllable word. Um, this is what's called disenculturation. Disenculturation. Enculturation has become like your culture. Disenculturation is what you become. Unlike your culture, there's three parts to it. What do you receive? What do you reject? And what do you redeem? Receive, reject, redeem. Right? What do we, what do, we do? You've got to receive the critique of pride and self-righteousness in applying judgment, right? The culture watching the church has said, you've done it wrong in a number of situations. There's a certain extent to which we have to receive that, right? But there's something we have to reject. That is, if we just paint with a broad brush, just no decision-making at all about the value or moral status of anything at all, ever, and don't talk about it. We've got to reject that as a placebo solution that's just going to kill us. And third, what do we redeem? What has to be redeemed is our faculty of judging. We are innately judging creatures, and that's why you're alive. That's why you're alive, because you judge to walk through the door rather than into the door post this morning. I mean, you decided to not pull out in front of a car because your judgment said pulling out in front of a car, bad. Right? It's, just, that's all, it's not even in your conscious mind, but that's what's happening. You're making judgments all the time, and most of them are totally necessary. The problem is, you made all kinds of we make all kinds of judgments about people and who they are and what they're like and blah, 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 because we have to. But the question is, if you believe in depravity, you can't be a Christian without believing in depravity, that you are bent on the inside in, a, in an ugly way, you've got to believe that even your best faculties are broken and twisted. And the redemption of the gospel has got to get into those and begin to work on them. Does that make sense? And so that has to be redeemed. Now, I want to take a couple minutes on this matters. Because I, I do not want you to think, oh, there goes Nick. He's got to preach some cultural sermon about blah, blah, apologetics, and here's how you defend it. Blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. This gets at every moment of our psychological and social lives. All of it. You are totally a social creature that's not going to stop, and you are a psychological creature that's not going to stop. And this gets at every minute of every day of all of that, all the time. There could be nothing more practical fundamentally than understanding this. And it matters because of 16 things. Ready? 
I'm just kidding. It's five, but there are a lot of subpoints. One is denial just creates bad things. Okay? Your judgment faculty faculty is involuntary in its function and unconquerable in its persistence. You are going to be a judging creature the rest of your life. The question is, what sort? And is that faculty going to be redeemed? Secondly, the issue of judging is handled extremely simplistically both inside the church and in the outside culture. So we've got to, we're going to have to take a parking stop if we're going to talk about this significantly because it's not getting talked about in very many places. Third, this is something we feel constant pressure about, right? Don't you feel pressured about this? Don't judge. Don't be talking about it. You can't say that. I mean, the only thing interesting about national pundits is who's assassinating the other person for saying something that could possibly, if you make these five steps of logic and insert this thing that they never said could be taken offensive and we can destroy their career now. It's just a big soap opera. I don't even have to, I don't have to watch soaps. I can just watch what happens to people who give opinions publicly. That's the only thing interesting about most cable news shows, right? It's, there's a lot, and listen, if we are going to face this emotional pressure, we had better have some mental clarity about it. Because emotional pressure confuses thinking. It's like grief. When somebody dies, don't be making decisions. Why? Because you're not thinking straight. Well, when somebody emotionally pressures you, you're not thinking straight. That's why salesmen go to school for sales. Because pressuring people works, and you learn all the different ways to do it. If all, if all you had to do is persuade people in sales, you'd never go to school for sales. You'd just learn your product. And you'd say, well, look, it chops things this way and this way. It's really nice. You know? You just go on the forward line and be like, look, this seat goes down like this. It's got 27.4 cup holders, and, you know, it's just— but that's not because persuasion matters because you can, if you pressurize people in the right way. Now, fifthly, fourthly, the biblical message seems conflicted if you don't know the Bible very well. If you don't, and the Bible's a big book and most people don't know very well. Most Christians don't know very well. Very few Christians read the Bible. And most Christians, their total knowledge of the scriptures on judgment is what's been quoted at them by non-Christians who are mad at them. And most of those passages are torn out of their context. They mean totally—sometimes the opposite of what they're quoted to mean. And so we had this idea in our heads that somehow God, or somehow there's some judgment stuff we're supposed to make decisions about, and there's sin and righteousness or whatever, but yet God is totally against any kind of moral decision-making. I mean, it's very—can be very confusing. And then five, this has an enormous effect on our practical daily lives. Okay, and I've got 27 subpoints. Ready? One, it, it will paralyze you in relating and especially in parenting. If you really believe you don't have the right to make decisions and you have no moral authority justly given you, or, and you, you don't have to make certain decisions because you're constrained by what's right and wrong, you're dead in the water as a parent. You just wait till that kid—I mean, if you can't tell a kid at four, I'm your father— you're my child. I have rightful authority, not, not made-up authority, but right authority over you. You are going to do this. You just wait till your kid is like 16, they're quoting this non-judgmental junk at you. You're not going to the party. Who are you to judge me? I thought we, got, I thought we established this when you were four, right? We don't, though, but we don't. And what are they supposed to think? If we, if, we, if we convey to a four-year-old that families are essentially egalitarian democracies— that you can secede from at any moment, what do you think they're going to do when they're 15 and they think you're an idiot? They're just going to get angry and they're going to pitch a fit. Why? Because what happens when people confront you? What do you do? 
Do you go, that's a really good point. Let me, th- let me think about that. Tell me more about what you think is defective and wrong with me. Is that what you say? Or do you fly off the handle? Who are you to judge me? And then you, then you go home, you take your hat and your umbrella, go home, and you confront your 16-year-old about how selfish they are. The only reason you don't get confronted about how selfish you are is because you blew up with the last four people, right? It paralyzes us in parenting and in social issues. It misguides our moral development. Have you noticed that we don't teach kids to be good anymore? We teach them to be nice. I stole that from a social scientist I was listening to in a podcast this week. We, we used to tell people they were good, to be good. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what's virtuous. This is what is, is wicked. I mean, here, but now we, t- we teach them to get along. Don't cause any trouble. Be nice with others. Don't— Do you see the difference? One is teaching kids to swim against the stream. The other is to tell them to make sure they go downstream. Well. What that produces is cowards. That's what that produces. It's terrible, but that's what we do. You just listen. Just listen in the hallways. Listen at your playgroups. Listen all over the place. How parents parent. It's basically be nice. Play nice. Be nice. Don't cause trouble. Oh, you cause trouble for me because I'm swimming downstream. I'm a moral coward, and now you've created this problem. No, 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 no. We need to form our kids just like we need Jesus to form us. For goodness, not niceness. And the fact is, is that you can't just get along, go along to get along if you're being formed that way. And listen, the father does not spoil his children. We can spoil our kids all all we want. God's still going to treat us the same. He's just going to be pretty angry about our parenting. Okay, more— Oh, it makes us more avoidant in conflict and comfortable as cowards. Because we can use being not judgmental as the reason we didn't confront somebody when we should have. So normally, like the guy who ought to confront his buddy about cheating on his wife at the— He should— because he, he, he'll buy into that judgmental thing, he'll be, he'll be, he wouldn't be able to live with himself if he confronted his buddy because he'd be so judgmental. He ought to not be able to live with himself for not confronting his buddy. Look, I've, listen, I've been in exactly that situation. Exactly that situation. I had a friend come to me. He's like, I'm, I'm hanging out with this guy. He's my boss, but he's running around with his wife, and I don't know what to do. I'm trying to encourage him to not act that way, and blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm like, listen— You just got to ask yourself, you know, what do you think God wants you to do? You know, and it was, that's real delicate. And actually went very badly. And most wives feel like that woman who made the comment. Makes us void in conflict, comfortable as cowards. Um, it makes us more prone to petty conflict and slander and gossip. Now, think about this. When you say, okay, don't say any, don't judge, don't say anything, blah, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't talk to somebody because they'll get all upset. So conflict, what happens under that culture? Conflict goes up or down? Down, right? Okay, but we're still judging creatures. That doesn't stop. What happens to gossip? It goes up. You, we don't say things directly to people because that would be judgmental, but we still feel that way and our opinions still come out. So we either write blogs, right, or tweet or put things on Facebook that are veiled, or— we just got, gossip and slander is way up. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed. I mean, most people can't even define slander or gossip anymore, right? But it's, it's everywhere, and it is rampant, and it is, in, in my adult lifetime, it is increasing dramatically everywhere. All this while, we're becoming less judgmental. All that means is we're becoming more emotionally unhealthy. We can't actually go to a person who has a problem and actually talk to them. We have to let it leak out in other places. 
And then, 17thly, it, it, undermi- it undermines uh, the true virtues of social life. We use a moral shortcut, let's not be judgmental, as this whitewash over everything so that we don't have to do anything. What that means is we don't have to be virtuous, and so we don't have to develop any of the public virtues of social life. And so we push to the periphery things like tolerance, being really liberal towards other people we actually disagree with, courtesy and helpfulness, civility, politeness and friendliness, respect and reverence, neighborliness, dishonesty and directness, or honesty and directness, um, real objectivity. So when somebody talks to you, you don't receive it as you. You say, okay, if they were saying that same thing to Bill, what would I think about it? We don't do that. We just fly off the handle. What do, who, who do you think you are? That's total subjectivity. And, and it was believed for a long time in Western culture that when something was said to you, you had to take your personal interest out of it and just decide whether or not it was a fact. We don't do that now. We just, we just act like a four-year-old. That's, a, that's what we do. If I blow up, I don't have to handle this. That's why, we have, that's why a lot of marriages are terrible. Terrible! Because one person blows up and then the other person becomes avoidant. Why? Because of this. Don't judge me. Let's both be moral cowards. Our kids won't pick up on it. Right? So all, the, all those things go away. I mean, how do you teach? How do you teach civility? Okay, no, you're going to talk to that person, and, and you're not going to persuade them. They're not going to persuade you, and you're going to have a very polite conversation, which you don't say li- little jabs about them. You treat what they say as—you you try to make their argument for them as charitably as possible. You ask them to do the same with you— it's just those disciplines are gone. Do you think since judgmentalism has become king of the day, do you think the kids have become more respectful and reverent or less respectful and reverent generally? Well, I think less. And is it their fault? Not really. It's because we're being idiots. Why? Because how much respect do you see and reverence do you see among adults? We don't have to have it because we just don't engage because that would be judgmental to engage. So we don't engage at all across communities. And so, and so neighbors don't even speak to each other. Don't even speak to each other. I, I, it's, it's funny. I came to the non-judgmental city of Madison from the judgmental south. <laughs> and... I, have, I had never in my life had a problem with a neighbor. Never in my life. And I have more than one who won't even speak to me because we didn't see totally eye to eye on something. And so I got to be thrown out as a human being and the, any relationship happening between us at all is just gone. I have one per, I have a neighbor that won't speak to me because they think I vote for the other political party that I don't vote for. There's no engagement. What has it gotten us? Nothing. That's good. Hardly. All right, blah, blah, blah. I have two more pages on that. Here's the bottom line. The idea that anti-judgmentalism can be at the heart of a new social and political morality is enormously intellectually, psychologically, and morally misguided, and we will pay dearly for it. We will pay for it in the macro culture, but we could pay less for it in the micro culture of the Christian community if we got this straight. And so I'm going to be preaching on this for the next three weeks because it's the next three passages in First Corinthians. This one in chapter 4 and then the two parts of chapter 5. So what I want to do is dive right in right now 
<clears throat> on what the Bible actually says about this. What does the Bible actually say? As Christians, shouldn't we know that? Shouldn't that matter to us? What does the Bible actually say? Now, in, now, one of the things that you find when there's enormous misconception about something, usually it is built on a fairly simple logical fallacy. Fairly simple that you just overlook before you even know it. And one of the ones I think this is built on is the distinction between complete rejection and extensive regulation. Complete rejection and extensive regulation. It's very easy to look at something that has extensive regulation and think that what people really want is complete rejection. And that's true, right? That's true in some cases. In some cases, we don't like something, and so we try to regulate it out of existence so people won't do it anymore. You know? If you don't like hunting, you don't have to say you can't go hunting. Just make hunting licenses $6,000. That's all you got to do. And it's over. And the people who can afford it are going to shoot some big deer. So, right, you just, you can write. So sometimes the two work together, but there's a lot of things that are very good we don't want to get rid of, we want more of, but we still regulate them extensively. Think about the Old Testament and all the regulations on worship, right? There's like three books in the first five books of the Bible, regulating worship, regulating worship, regulating worship, regulate. Don't do this, you can't do this, you don't do that, this is how you do this. You have to have these parties, here's all, you gotta do all this stuff, right? What? And so we're, should we, should we go, oh, God must not want us to worship him. No, that's ridiculous. All those regulations point to the goodness of worship and the blessing to us that comes from worshiping God the right way, right? Marriage, for example. Are there lots of regulations in the Bible on marriage? Absolutely. Heavily regulated thing in the Bible, right? But does that mean that marriage, therefore, is not a blessing you should stay away from it because there's lots of regulations? No, that's very silly. In the Bible, marriage is held up as an enormous blessing when engaged in according to the requirements when things are going bad, that's one place to look. Or, I mean, just, just take normal life. I mean, think about a sport you cheer for, right? You probably cheer for a sport that doesn't have any rules, right? I mean, even the ultimate fighting challenge has rules. You know, you can't bite people there. It's out. Right? But, I mean, think about baseball. I mean, what if there were no—there's no strike zone at all? No strike zone. You should be like, you just—if you're ahead, you just keep throwing the ball in the stands until everybody leaves. You win. That's it. Boom. Or you just throw it at the guy every time. You know, and so hits go like this now. They're like parries, you know. Just turns into cricket that fast, you know. I'm sorry if that offended you ethnically. So I play cricket in India, so I have a little— Give me a little leeway. Um, so, I mean, it's just—almost all—football, baseball, basketball, curling, all the sports we love— are, in, are intensely and heavily regulated with many rules, and that's one of the things that makes them fun, right? If you could shoot a receiver in the chest at hike with a 45, it would not be as much fun to watch Jordy Nelson. Yeah, I mean, it just wouldn't. I mean, Jermichael Finley still wouldn't be able to catch, but I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's going to be awesome this year. Um, but it just, it wouldn't be any fun. You gotta have rules. You gotta have rules. And you see, we think that because, because, here's the thing, the Bible, does the Bible regulate judging? Absolutely, right? All over the place. There's lots of biblical passages that regulate judging. Most of the ones that people quote at us as eliminating judgment are actually there to heavily regulate judgment. But does that mean we, judgment's not good? No, it means it is good, but because we're sinful— it requires a lot of regulation because we will screw it up. And like sex and marriage and worship and all these great things, 
we have the capacity to take something that's very good and wreck it because of our depravity. And so therefore, God needs to give us all these regulations that if we really understand their inner workings and apply them not out of legalism, but out of the gospel. How does the way Christ saves me and motivates me toward himself, if I apply these things, how will they shape me as a person and in my character, in my emotions, so that out of joy I will like to do the thing God wants me to do and I will be within the running of the good life that he's created and, and experience blessing? How, how does that work, right? And it's very easy to think that because the Bible regulates something, it's against it. And that's just silliness. It's just, it's just logical ignorance or laziness or both. And I would encourage you not to go with that one. Um, I'm going to skip ahead to a couple of passages. I'm not going to talk about all the cultural argument against or for non-judgmentalism. But there, uh, there's this one quote from, from D.A. Carson um, where he said, he said, I believe that people often think that John 3.16 is the most known Bible verse, but it's not the most known Bible verse. People know the numbers for that verse, but they couldn't quote it to you. But almost anybody on the street can actually quote to you Matthew 7, 1. Don't judge, lest you be judged. Most known Bible verse in America, probably, right? Some, some people only know the first phrase, don't judge, but, you know, don't be too judgmental. Um, what I want to do for a couple minutes is go over two of the most commonly quoted passages and demonstrate that what people say Scripture says in these passages is not what they, it says. In fact, in, in both of these cases, it says the opposite because I want to free you from this idea that people have the Bible on their side when they tell you that not engaging and being a coward under the whitewash of let's just not judge anybody is not what the Bible teaches at all. And listen, I say that crassly. I have no doubt that most of our cultural neighbors have very good and sincere intentions in using the universal rule of no judging to encourage people not to be mean to each other, okay? And these are not stupid people. They think a lot clearer than a lot of us about a lot of things. And so I don't, I, don't want, I don't want us to get this sort of judgmental attitude towards people that believe in the universal help of non-judgmentalism. Okay? It's important. Here's, here, Tim Keller says this. This is really important to get, okay? Listen to this. Keller says this. He says, listen. If you're a Christian, you believe in natural revelation and that everybody's made in the image of God. That's, you got to believe that. Even unsafe people have natural revelation. There's certain things they can't miss. There's certain things, J.J. Bujasevsky said, there's certain things you cannot not know, Christian or not. And every Christian is still struggling with their depravity. So what that means is the worldview of every non-Christian, even if Christianity is totally true, okay, every non-Christian's worldview is going to be better than it should be, even denying God. And every Christian's worldview is going to be worse than it ought to be because of depravity. And so in a lot of situations, non-Christians are going to think better than us about things because our depravity has dragged us this way and natural revelation and the image of God in them have pulled them this way. And they will be able to confront us and say things to us that are extremely insightful that we have missed. And, that, and so we can be greatly helped. But here's the thing. If one, of, if one of the moves of godliness is to move away from worldliness, it's very unlikely that we can receive our full correction against worldliness in this area from the world. Does that make sense? Okay, two passages. First is Matthew 7, 1. Um, the first two phrases of which are, don't judge lest you be judged. Now, 
if you know some stuff about the Bible or the New Testament, that verse comes from a passage in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount, which is a group of Jesus' teachings put together in one sermon. Probably stuff he taught a whole bunch of different times. And there might, it's, it's real possible one time he taught them all together, and that's what we got. But all these things come from what he said all the time. He, I mean, he's preached that sermon 50 different places. He was an itinerant. So, if, but if you, so if you start in Matthew 5 and you read through to the end of Matthew 7, the whole sermon, what you're going to find is that Jesus says a lot of very judgmental things. For example, he says at one point, Jesus being judgmental, he says, if you look at a woman and you lust after her in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Right? He says that, right? You guys know he says that, right? Isn't that judgmental? Right? You look at a woman a little, little crossways and you're guilty of adultery? I mean, come on. It's a little, right? There's another place where he says, listen, if you store up for yourself treasure here, and not in heaven, that is, you're not generous. You're not a generous person. Then you're really guilty of greed, and it's, it's a really, really ugly thing. And you're going to lose everything. I mean, that's it's a little judgmental. I mean, just throw on greed like that? I mean, if some of you are offended right now. You're like, what, are you saying I'm not greedy? Look, you're offended, right? That's judgmental. Back to the point. Right, we're not talking about giving. We're talking about judgment, right? That's pretty judgmental. If your blood pressure's up, you're just proving my point, Right? Or um, he says, keep on guard for false prophets. People are going to lie to you. Say, you got to resist them, right? Now, he, isn't he saying there are people who are liars and false prophets and you shouldn't listen to them and you should like make a decision about whether or not to follow them? Yes. And on and on and on. I mean, he says at one point, there's a lot of people who think they're Christians. They're not. They're going to come to me and say, hey, Lord, aren't we buddies? And I'm going to say, no, there's the door to hell. And that's not what you would normally say is Pan accepting. You know what I'm saying? And all of that is right in the same passage as this passage. Do you really believe, with intellectual honesty, you can believe that what Jesus means by don't judge lest you be just is simply that? All moral decision making is just out. Now, that's the general context. It gets the immediate context. It's worse. I mean, just just read the verses, right? Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, right? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, you might think that verse goes to the next passage, but I don't think it does. What's the passage, what's the passage really about? Is it about a complete rejection of all judgment? No, it's about hypocrisy, Right? The passage is about hypocrisy. Like, well, Nick, well, why does he just say it categorically then? Don't judge, lest you be judged. Listen, it's called hyperbole. I've said to my daughters, you, I'm going to kill you a number of times, and they both still live, okay? <laughs> People say stuff, oversay things, they say things categorically all the time, and they don't literally mean them categorically, and you can usually tell if you read the next sentence. <laughs> okay? It's a lot of work, but it can be done, all right? If you read the next sentence, what does it say? It says this. When you see something in another person that you believe you should rightfully reproach, what is the first thing you should assume? Right? Step one is that it is worse in you. 
So step number one, when you see something, and now think of the grace of God in that. Think of how loving that is, okay? Are you ever going to see that in you? Of course not. That's why you're judging the other person. You think it's a personal strength, right? So you're totally oblivious to it in you. So when you see it in the other person, it's so easy to see it in the other person. You're like, oh my gosh, look at that person parent. Like, you know, no discipline, right? And then Jesus goes, okay, oh, it's probably worse than you. Now go look for it. It's there. Don't see, oh, my, Lord, is it me? No. Okay, thanks. Just let me, let me talk to you. I mean, that's what most people do, right? But you got, no, you assume it's worse than you. It's there. You just have to figure out what it is. And then you go look for it, and then you deal with it, right? And then what does it say? Then what's the next step? Then leave your brother alone, right? No, it says then what? Then you're ready to go to your brother and help them with the speck in their own eye. Now, that is not to say that the, what you do is you grab them and you get a spork and you gouge out their eye in order to get the piece of wood out, which is what most of us do in our weaker—no, you help, you encourage, you, you're just delicately— I mean, think about the metaphor. Getting something out of somebody's eye. Uh, <clears throat> delicacy, anyone, right? I mean, do you get the metaphor? Be as delicate as you can. It's their eye, okay? Just relax. And then what does it say? And then it says, now be careful who you do this to. Because th there are going to be some folks that are so committed to non-judgmentalism. They're going to be so committed to how dare you. They're going to be so committed to foolishness over wisdom, so committed to wickedness over righteousness, that to try to, try to help them at that point in their life, they may just not be able to do, to be, to do that. And you're, you're really just going to get your leg bit off. And it's probably better to just wait and see what happens. Unless for some reason you can't, right? Like you've got to tell the guy's wife. Sometimes you just have to no matter what. But you want God to be wise about it. Um, now, if you read that whole verse, do you, be, you really believe with intellectual honesty, if you take some time to reflect on what Jesus is actually teaching, that you can believe that that verse means you should abdicate your responsibility in confronting others? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that that passage is a call for intense personal virtuous courage. One, the virtue to have the courage to look at yourself and assume that that failure is in you and to want to actually do something about it. Two, to actually want to work for the therapeutic help of the other person. And three, to recognize that sometimes it is wise to wait. Right? I mean, that's right. If that's what it says. If we read it and actually say, what did Jesus mean rather than how can I culturally use this to the end that I want to? Another passage, 1 Corinthians, 5, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing, right? I mean, if somebody says, somebody says, don't you know the Bible says judge nothing? I, you, you say, yes, I, I do know that in some translations, those two English words are put together, but it is not even a phrase in that verse, right? The, I mean, the verse says more than that, but one of the things I think is important to recognize is the immediate context. All you have to do is read the next page. I mean, think about this. 1 Corinthians 5, the first eight verses, is Paul excoriating this church because they didn't judge a guy. It's a whole passage, right? There's this guy. He's shacked up with his, probably his stepmother, probably not his, his um, actual, like, mother mother. But he's, he's shacked up with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. He's in the church, and everybody's being really non-judgmental. He says, he says he's there, he's in the church, and you're proud, meaning you're proud, you're not judging him at all. 
And Paul says, dude, I've already passed judgment on this guy a continent away. You should have thrown him out of your church. And the fact that you haven't shows how proud and how not interested in the gospel you are. Now, listen, do you really think that therefore in chapter 4, he can possibly mean judgment is totally out? When in two paragraphs, he's going to say, look, you should have given that guy the boot. Now, I'm going to preach on that passage next week. It's a little more nuanced than that. But it's not less than that. You see, the, the point here is, is very different. He's dealing with people who are not trying to judge in, sense, in the sense of trying to discern whether or not what these people are teaching is valid and helpful and the real gospel and really spiritually nourishing for them. They are judging these people to put them in categories so that they can associate themselves with them so that they can have a higher moral, a higher social status on the basis of who they're with and who they're not with. That's what it's about. And that is the thing that Paul has a problem with, that they think that they're qualified to judge these people and that they're judging them at all on things that are sheer gifts. Right? I mean, honestly, do you— I mean, there's some—it's so funny talking to people who think that because they think this preacher is better than that preacher, that they're somehow smart. Right? That they're just like, well, you know, I've been over to that church, and that preacher, he's, he's really good. But the preacher over at that church, he's never good. I'm just kind of like, you know what? You could, get your, you could get your average five-year-old, right? And just sit them in a church and be like, so, sweetie, who, who do you think was better? Which, which sermon did you like better? Oh, I think that one's— And he'll get it right 95% of the time. It's not like it's hard, right? It's, it's, but yet people act like, oh, yeah, well, I go over here, and we'll, who cares? And you, oftentimes, gifting has no relationship sometimes to truth. There, there are the, some of the best— some of the best people that I read and listen to speak are not good speakers. They're not good communicators. They are the driest scholars. And, and, and I mean, it's just, they write books. I mean, it's, it's, these are these things with pages. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's, and, but man, if you will do the work, the richness is incredible, right? And what Paul is getting on about here is, is not that, Oh, oh yeah, it's, you, you shouldn't be deciding who is more nourishing and then try to put that person into ministry to you so that you can be better off spiritually. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you think you can presume to say whether Paul or Paul or this guy or that guy is, any, is better and then associating. He's like, that totally misunderstands everything the gospel is about. And the reason he says that is he uses a specific language of a trust. There's two places, let me see if I can find this. There's two places where he talks this way. He says, now, it is a requirement that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. Now, the minute you realize that Paul's referring to himself, that his whole apostolic ministry, planting churches on three continents, is just a trust, here's the next step of logic. Now that applies to everybody, doesn't it? The minute it's no longer a preaching ministry, the minute it's a something you are trusted with that doesn't belong to you, but that you are responsible for, now that's everybody. Everybody has a trust. You have a trust. Your life. Your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus. He made it. He can brought you in this world. He can take you out of it, right? It, it belongs to him. It's totally his, and he can do whatever he wants with you. And your life is not yours, but it's given to you to be a steward over, that is, somebody in charge of what the outcome and, and what to do. And, to be, and so— and you know what you're supposed to do, and whether or not you do it has to do with whether or not you're faithful, and that's it. That's all there is to it. It has nothing to do with how many pl- churches Paul plants or anything. And he says, listen, because of that, because it's just faithfulness, that's all we get judged on. He says, listen, I, I don't care what you think. <laughs> because you can't know. 
right? How could they know whether or not Paul's inner motives were right and whether or not what he was planting was going to turn into fruit in the end? There's no way they could know that. So why does their view matter? It doesn't. All it shows is, is that they're completely out of touch with reality, thinking they can judge him. That's all. He said, but in the end, God will see the fruit, and God will be able to look at my inner motives and whether or not I was really faithful or whether I was just doing it for me all along. And then he'll—I'll get whatever praise I get from God. And that's it. Let me, let me try to bring it in this way. When he says these two things, ultimately what it breaks down to for us is this. That the two things that have the potential to take up 80% of our mental life go away. For a lot of people, what, what you think about you— well, there's three things. What you think about you— what you think about others and what others think about you takes up 50, 60, 70, 80, 90% of your mental life. What Paul is saying is if you believe the gospel, if you really believe it, the only person's perspective on you that matters at all is God's. And therefore, your views of other people don't matter. Their views of you don't matter. And your view of you doesn't matter. Because are you qualified to know whether or not all of your motives are right and whether what you are planning is going to come to fruit? No, not even your own motives. You don't even know your own motives. I mean, think about it. And, and he says that. He says, listen, I, my conscience is clear, meaning I don't know of anything in my life that I can be reproached for, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent, right? I mean, I had a professor one time that said, don't bother telling your people in your church about your sins because if they live with you at all, they know all about it, right? I mean, most of you. You've been here. You know about some things that I don't— obviously, it's obvious I don't see them, because if I saw them, I'd probably do something about it. But, but I don't. I can tell you. Listen, I can tell you just straight out of my own heart. I, my conscience is clear. I, I mean, I'm, I'm being as faithful as I can. But you probably know. You probably come to me, right, and after this sermon, you probably will come up to me and say, you know, Nick, I— But you see, and there's a certain extent to which my view of myself and your view of yourself, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is God's view of you. And the good news is this. There's two parts to it. The first is, in Jesus, the judgment of you as a being is already done, right? I mean, there's a verse, one of the verses in this passage says, if what he has built, meaning the person with a trust, that's everybody, right? If what he built survives, meaning it, it for the right reasons, came to real fruit, and after it was really tested by God, it really produced something— then he receives his reward, right? His praise from God in another passage. It says, but if it's burned up, meaning it didn't come to anything, right? But they genuinely were a believer in Jesus. They belong to Christ. What does it say? It says, he suffers loss, meaning you don't come out with anything, but he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. It's like there's a fire in your house and all they drag out is you. Well, guess what? You're alive, right? And so there's two— so one, if you are a believer, you don't have to be haunted by whether or not your anything is going to come to fruit. There's a song by Andrew Peterson where he says he, that God is glad for the fruit, but it's me that he loves. And then secondly, once you know your eternal destiny is not part of this judgment, whatever's going to happen, all you have is a trust to prove faithful. All of a sudden, all you've got to worry about is to please the one who made you and saved you. And a lot of people are deceived into believing that that would be a terrible weight 
to live all their life knowing that God was there, that God saw every action that they did, every thought that they thought, every intention of their heart, that if they knew that God was present, all, everywhere present all the time, saw all of that, that that would be this enormous weight on their life. It would be terrible. It would be terrible. Listen, friends, it is not anywhere near as terrible as living under the weight of your own self-reproachment, what other, thinking about what other people think of you, and having to care what you think of others. That is ten times heavier once you realize that when you come to faith in Jesus and, the, and your sin is put away and the righteousness of Christ is put on you, that the expression towards you is, not, is no longer a cosmic frown, but it's the gladness that the Father has in his heart for the Son, Christ, is expressed towards you. That is the weight you have to carry. The gladness of the Father over the righteousness of Christ, giving you a trust that you need only fulfill faithfully, and you know what to do. And the only reason it's hard is because you want to keep clutching the sin that you, you want to hold on to and you won't let go of. And, and knowing scripturally that God is taking you through a process where he's teaching you to let go of it willingly. And when you do and you turn towards him, there is blessing and there's gladness and there's joy and you see the wisdom in it. And there is a momentum to the life of beauty and honor and truth and courage that he's calling you to. If you don't get anything else from this whole series, okay, which doesn't mean don't come to church for three weeks, okay? It just means, if you don't get anything else from today or those days, get this. You need to get this. The most important thing to understand about judgment in Christianity is that there is only one person's judgment that matters at all. And the judgment that he has for your sin can be simply put away in Christ by faith. That's it. And the judgment he has over your life has nothing to do with whether or not you reach the success you want, but simply has to do with whether or not you will prove faithful in whatever trust he has given you through the help that he provides. And that, I would submit to you, is much easier to carry than what others think of you, what you think of others, and what you think about yourself. It is a great great expression of God's love. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray that you would make us a people who are really free, deeply free from our own pride and insecurity, our self-importance towards others and what we think, and also our insecurities of ourselves towards what others think of us and even what we think of ourselves, Father. I pray that you would free us through faith in your son and trust in your smile over him being over us in faith and that we can simply put our attention on fulfilling the trust you've given us with all our hearts, knowing that you are supporting us and helping us and driving us and teaching us all the way. And we pray that as Christians, you would give us good judgment about judgment. We pray in his name. Amen.